You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host. I've got uh, Captain Paul Watson on the show today. I'm very excited to have him on the show. Uh, Captain Paul has had an incredible life story. Originally a founder of Greenpeace who left there um, because felt their methods were being a bit too passive, uh, kind of actually walked the plank, actually. They they didn't uh, voted him out, but uh, he... He then started his own thing, uh, Sea Shepherd, which has engaged in aggressive yet nonviolent methods to stop whaling worldwide. Uh, Captain Watson's also been called an echo pirate and probably far worse. Uh, Some have said he was an echo terrorist and compared him to ISIS. I think that characterization is extreme and kind of bordering on ridiculous, uh, given his commitment to nonviolence. Uh, He's also been considered a persona non grata in Iceland after scuttling whale ships. Uh, Allegedly, Captain Paul has been pursued by the Japanese Coast Guard with the suspicion of sabotaging Japan's uh, whaling fleet. Maybe despite or maybe because of this, he's received the prestigious Jules Verne Award in France, the only the second environmentalist after Jacques Cousteau. a blast from the past from my youth. Uh, we used to always watch Jacques Cousteau on, you know, those nature shows. He was inducted into the U.S. Animal Rights Hall of Fame and received a George H.W. Bush Daily Points of Light Award. So uh, Paul's received a lot of accommodations uh, throughout the years. He was captain of the Sea Shepherd Show. Uh, Whale Wars that was on Animal Planet for seven years, a big hit there. And Whale Wars featured a number of episodes where Sea Shepherd was trying to prevent Japanese whaling ships and other vessels from harpooning whales. Uh, In September 2022, Captain Paul set up his own uh, foundation and split from Sea Shepherd. And he's got his first new ship, the Jean-Paul Doria II. And I've heard that uh, Paul considers himself an interventionist, uh, not a protester, because a protester is too submissive. Well, that's a fascinating uh, bio that you've got and uh, great work that you've been doing uh, protecting wildlife around the world. Uh, Welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much. Well, so tell us uh, this new chapter that uh, you're writing here. is that a uh, ship from one of your donors? I think that's, uh, isn't that John Paul Mitchell's name? Uh, the famous uh, hair products person? Yeah, John Paul DeJoria, who's um, partnered with Paul Mitchell for Paul Mitchell Shampoos. Right. And yeah, he, uh, he financed our, our latest vessel. He's been a longtime supporter during the time I was with uh, Sea Shepherd. But uh, I had to leave Sea Shepherd last year because uh, basically they, you know, they got Board of directors had a hostile takeover. They decided that I was too controversial and too com- uh, confrontational. So uh, I, they wanted to change, go in a different direction. I said, no, I couldn't support that. So they told me I was just an employee and better do what I was told. So I said, no, nah, I don't think so. Uh, so I set up the Captain Paul Watson Foundation just to carry on what I've been doing for the last 45 years, uh, which is my strategy of uh aggressive nonviolence to intervene directly and to uh, and to not hurt anybody, never have injured anybody. But we have shut down hundreds of illegal operations. And the point I should make is that we're not protesting anything legal. We're intervening against illegal activities. 
Uh, whaling is illegal under international law. It's a violation of the global moratorium on commercial whaling. Iceland this summer is targeting endangered uh, fin whales uh, in violation of the global moratorium. And uh, it's also in violation of European laws. And uh, so that's what we're trying to shut down, something which is unlawful. Problem is, is that governments have a lack of uh, uh, political and economic motivation to uphold international conservation law. Like just two months ago, we had the high seas treaty and everybody's patting themselves on the back saying, oh, isn't this wonderful? But it's meaningless without enforcement. And so, you know, we just have a lot of paper going back and forth and shuffling across desks, but nothing really is happening. Uh, the oceans are in trouble, the oceans are dying, and we need to be aggressive in our um, opposition to that destruction. Well, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I had had somebody on the program uh, a while back who was talking about undersea mining that they were planning to do. And it would seem like a pretty nefarious structure that was set up to regulate uh, this uh, mining operations that they were planning to do, which they really hadn't considered um, all the potential consequences to to that. And so it's kind of surprising that two-thirds of the planet, which is made up of oceans, are somewhat unregulated. Well, they can't say that they weren't, uh, that they're not aware of the consequences. In 1978, I actually uh, did a big uh, campaign against ocean mining when it was starting to come out, and uh, there's been an awful lot of information out since then. And it's a very destructive thing, this uh, effort to go after manganese nodules on the bottom of the ocean. It's going to create all incredible marine ecological uh, chaos and uh, but, you know, the problem is, is that everything is about money and making money for short term investment, for short term gain and, uh, you know, damn the consequences that they do. You know, there's just no long term understanding of what those uh, impacts are going to be. And uh, we see it in fisheries. There's no commercial fishing anywhere in the world today. All commercial fishing is uh, unsustainable. Uh, we have overfished the ocean. And probably the most alarming thing to me is that since 1950, we've seen a 40% diminishment in phytoplankton in the sea. Now, phytoplankton provides up to 70% of the oxygen in the air we breathe and sequesters enormous amounts of CO2. And the truth is, is if phytoplankton were to be removed from the ocean, we die. We don't live on a planet without phytoplankton. It's as simple as that. And so that's why I say all the time, if the ocean dies, we die. Well, I just was uh, reading some stuff about uh, the fact that, you know, the ocean takes up most of the CO2 uh, that's been released in the form of greenhouse gases gets really deposited like a sponge into the ocean and that, uh, you know, the ocean's kind of at its uh, breaking point, having sucked up so much of it, it's uh, really it, the consequences are, um, you know, you know, existential threat to our environment. So um, what do you think we can do to to stop this process? At the COP21 conference in Paris, uh, when I spoke there, I was alarmed at first because there, there was no discussion about ocean at all. We actually had to work to get the French uh, government to incorporate the ocean as something to be concerned about. About. And so they set up at the Ocean Forum, which quickly got uh, taken over by the seafood industry. And, you know, they decided that they were going to do the sponsorship on it, just like Coca-Cola sponsored the uh, COP26 uh, event this, uh, this, this, uh, this year. So 
And what I proposed at that ocean conference is this, if you want to protect, address climate change, and then you need to protect the ocean and to protect the ocean, the really, we don't have to do anything. We just have to leave it alone and let it uh, recover. We need a 50 year or 75 year moratorium on commercial industrialized fishing. We cannot do deep sea mining. We have to stop dumping plastic into the oceans. We have to stop pile driving and creating noise pollution in the ocean. We just have to stop doing these things and the ocean will solve that problem. It will address the issue. You know, if you look at it this way, is uh, the Earth is a spaceship. It's on this incredible voyage around the Milky Way. And every spaceship has a life support system that provides us with the air we breathe and uh, sequesters CO2 and regulates climate and temperature and provides us with the food we eat. And that life support system is maintained and run by a crew of engineers. Uh, that ranges from trees to bees to worms to microbes to the fishes of the ocean to whales. We humans, we're, we're passengers. We're having a wonderful time into entertaining ourselves. But what we're doing is we're murdering crew members. We're killing off the engineers. And there's only so many engineers you can kill before that machinery begins to break down and cannot support that life support system. So we have to understand that we live on this planet because of our interdependence with all other species and especially the so-called lower species, the microbes, the worms, uh, you know, the insects, we don't live on this planet without them. They don't need us, but we sure, we certainly need them. And uh, I think that what that's going to take is a complete shift in our paradigm of uh, looking on the world from a biocentric point of view and not from an anthropocentric view, because most of the world has been for the last Few thousand years, very anthropocentric, meaning it's all about us. Everything's about us. Everything was created just for us and nothing else matters. We have to change that. We have to understand that we're part of everything. We're interdependent with everything and we have to learn to live in harmony with all those other species. Well, it's very well said. I mean, uh, I was talking to somebody else and they were talking about how I think it was Darwin said that the most important species on the planet uh, were the earthworms and creating the earth uh, and the soil. Like, uh, I guess from a from an earth-centric standpoint, I guess the phytoplankton might be the most important uh, in the ocean, would you say? Well, I think it's the most important on the planet because it provides up to 70% of the oxygen we breathe. And it sequesters far more CO2 than the, uh, the rainforests or the forests. But What's, why is it being diminished? It's because we're killing off the whales and the dolphins, the seabirds, the turtles, and the fishes, and they provide the nutrient base for the phytoplankton, the nitrogen, the magnesium, and uh, the iron, especially. And uh, because it, they get that from the fecal material. One blue whale every day defecates three tons into the sea, enormous amounts of nutrients on that. And so the whales, in fact, are the farmers of the ocean, keeping that crop turning over all the time. And so doing what in the sea, what the worms, of course, do in the soil. So there's so many species that we are absolutely depend dependent upon. You know, bees disappear, we're in trouble. Worms disappear, we're in trouble. And if whales disappear, we're in trouble. Well, you're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Matter, and your host. We'll be back in just one minute with uh, Paul Watson. You're listening to a climate change. This is Matt Matter, and I've got uh, Captain Paul Watson on the show. 
Captain, uh, tell us what are your thoughts are as far as restoration of the phytoplankton? What uh, what can we do? Or I know you said we should just stop messing with the ocean, uh, given the kind of reality as we have it today. What are the steps that we can take uh, most productively to, um, you know, revive the phytoplankton? Well, we need to shut down industrialized uh, commercial fishing operations, and that might be realistic, but it's going to happen anyway, when, because all, most of these fisheries today are in a state of collapse. Within 50 years, they will totally collapse, and that'll be the end of it. So we should be proactive uh, on this. Uh, what is sustainable fishing? Uh, you know, if you go out in your canoe out of the Philippines and catch a fish, that's sustainable fishing. But 100-mile-long gill nets, 100-mile-long long lines, giant uh, drip nets, um, Persaners, super trawlers. This is what is destroying life in the ocean. Forty percent of all of the uh, of the fish that's taken out of the ocean isn't uh, is is caught illegally, and a lot of it goes not directly to people, but it's actually fed to chickens and pigs and salmon on salmon farms. It's converted into fish meal. And uh, right now they're also talking about uh, mass harvesting of, uh, of krill or zooplankton, uh, especially in the Southern Ocean, to turn that into a protein paste in order to uh, feed to uh, domestic animals on, on factory farms. Uh, so it's all being uh, industrialized and uh, without any real thought given to what the um, impact of that is on the overall oceanic uh, marine system. There are three basic laws of ecology. The first is the law of diversity, that the strength of any ecosystem is dependent upon the diversity within it. The more diversity, the stronger the ecosystem. The second is the law of interdependence, that all species within an ecosystem are interdependent with each other. And the third is the law of finite resources, that there's a limit to growth, a limit to carrying capacity. And when one species steals the carrying capacity from all the other species, that causes uh, diminishment in both diversity and interdependence leading towards ecological collapse. So this, I mean, it's pretty simple what we have to do, but of course it's considered impractical because it gets into the way of all of this investment and you know people making money off of everything. And basically greed is, is the problem. And the problem for politicians is that they don't have the courage to actually do anything because they'll probably be voted out of office if they actually do anything significant. And if you, you know, if, you, if you're too, if you're too aggressive, they'll call you a terrorist. You know, I always find it funny when they call me a terrorist because I've never, I've never worked with Monsanto, so it doesn't really bother me. <laughs> but but uh, the, uh, but, you know, I think it's important that we, that we be aggressive. I think that movements like Extinction Rebellion are, are important. We have to keep pushing society to understand that this is a really, really serious problem and it's, and it's not going to go away. It's not going to get any better. Well, I think that's the the uh, the big challenge is to wake people up from essentially the sleep that we've been in. That, uh, of course, mass media and and uh, you know has tried to put us into this sleep uh, from not communicating and us maybe not doing the work to stay informed. I mean, things like hundred mile long nets are almost unfathomable. Uh, you know how that could be happening i mean the the extent of overfishing in the oceans just incredible but uh i hadn't heard of this krill harvesting that seems like that's just going to you know make the in 
you know, the oceans spin down in a spiral even faster. What, uh, what's your, what's a, give us some more insight into that and how, uh, how we can work to stop that. Well, giant trawlers going down to the Southern ocean and just pulling this up by the hundreds of thousands of tons, you know, literally taking the food out of the mouths of whales and penguins and seals and that. Uh, it's, it's a major industry and there's not really not much uh, uh, studies have gone into the ecological impact on this because it's down there in the Southern Ocean, out of sight, out of mind. Nobody really cares. They don't know about it. So that's getting people to be aware of it is, is difficult. And the reason being is mainstream media is controlled by corporations. Governments are controlled by corporations. And so we're, we, we only hear what they want us to hear. And they only address the problems that they feel that they, they can address and keep their corporate masters happy, really, is what it comes, what it comes down to. So it's going to be very, very difficult to see that uh, change um, come about. And I think, unfortunately, it's going to happen when we begin to feel the impact, the consequences of what, what we're doing. And we're already, you know, there's vast dead zones in the ocean. There's floating, uh, you know, Texas-sized areas of floating plastics in the ocean. There's acidification. There's the dying of the coral reefs and uh, the diminishment of, uh, of the fishes. So it's, um, it's escalating quite rapidly. You know, I was born in 1950 when there were 3 billion people on the planet. It's now approaching 8 billion people. And I was raised in a fishing village. And I have seen firsthand the diminishment of this so-called fishing industry. There's no fishermen anymore. There's no fishing people out there anymore. What it is is corporations that are running everything like Mitsubishi. And uh, I mean, the entire West Coast Canadian uh, fishing fleet is owned by one man, Jimmy Pattison, who used to be a used car dealership. And he just bought up everything and has a lot of control over the Canadian government. And the Canadian Department of Fisheries, uh, Fisheries and Oceans has proven to be one of the most incompetent bodies in the world. I mean, uh, under their uh, authority, the uh, entire North Atlantic cod fishery collapsed. And now they're doing the same thing to indigenous salmon populations on, on the West Coast. And when they collapse, they don't recover. The northern cod fishery collapsed in 1992. The government said, uh, in 10 years, it'll be revived. It's never recovered. And it won't recover. Not in our lifetime, anyway. You know, and the problem is when we treat every fish as a fish and is, you know, salmon takes four years to become sexually mature and dies. An orange ruffy, 45 years to become sexually mature and lives to be 200 years of age, can't keep up with our uh, demand. That's why in the 1990s you saw orange ruffy in seafood restaurants and markets everywhere. Now you don't see it there at all. Gone. But we have this incredible ability to uh, adapt to diminishment. As things become diminishment, we just simply accept it and move on to another species or another issue. I mean, in 1965, the very idea that you'd be buying water in plastic bottles mm -hmm. and paying more for that money than the equivalent amount of gasoline would have been unimaginable. People would have thought you were crazy if you were going to suggest that. But we've just adapted to that diminishment. And now water is worth more than gasoline. And uh, we just don't think about it. So as uh, ecosystems are diminished, we forget what it used to be and just adapt to the situation as it is right now. So uh, the krill harvesting, uh, I'm assuming that is being done legally or is that uh, is that a violation of the law of the sea? For the most part, it's being done legally because, uh, you know, they haven't really caught up with the fact of what they're doing to actually make any laws to make it illegal. Uh, so, um, I mean, this is something that people are, in fact, working on is to do further studies, the impact of what this is having on marine ecosystems 
And yes, eventually they'll probably come up with laws against it. But it's the same thing with whaling. We didn't come up with laws to protect whales until we had pretty much destroyed the whale populations around the world. And like in the 1960s, and they said, you know, when the, the, they wiped out the blue whales, they wiped out uh, the humpback whales, and it's been taking so long to recover. But it wasn't until 1983 that the International Whaling Commission finally got around to passing a moratorium on, on commercial whaling. It was a little too late, but at least it was something that it, and it has had an impact on that, except for Iceland, Norway, and Japan that continue to violate international conservation law and kill whales. But that's a, that's a problem is that uh, it's called, I call it the economics of extinction. There's money to be made by driving species into extinction. Bluefin tuna is a good example, an endangered species that's heavily fished still, uh, but Mitsubishi, for example, has 10 to 15 years supply of bluefin tuna in their warehouses, frozen. They could stop fishing for the next 10 years and still supply their consumers with bluefin tuna. But the reason they won't do that is because if they stop fishing and bluefin tuna populations begin to recover, then the price of the commodity in their warehouses will go down because scarcity translates into profit. So they want to keep the, the, a lot of these species scarce so that they can continue to exploit their, their rarity. And uh, because the more demand, of course, the more valuable they are. And uh, so they're still taking bluefin tuna and they've taken 90% of them out of the ocean. And with 10% remaining, they're still going after them. And it's, it's pretty much the same with every single species uh, in the ocean. Well, that's, that's a pretty incredible story about Mitsubishi and, uh, Quite, you know, quite frankly, so disheartening because you think of uh, Norway and Japan and Iceland as being fairly um, progressive, environmentally conscious uh, countries in in a lot of ways. Um, And yet they are uh, clearly not being very conscious. So I have like uh, a couple of questions. One, as far as your work in in helping save whales, uh, I know that. You've done a lot to help revive those populations. Where are we at in terms of turning those populations around? Well, some species are recovering. Humpbacks are recovering. Blue whales are recovering. Uh, But uh, other species like right whales, uh, bowheads, uh, are are having a problem. And a lot of that has to do with ship strikes and entanglement with lobster uh, traps and uh, entanglement with nets, for example. And to give you an idea of all those nets, by the way, is that in uh, 2015, we recovered one net from a a toothfish fishing vessel in the Southern Ocean. That net took 200 hours to pull up from two kilometers down. That net was uh, 72 kilometers long and weighed 70 tons, one net from from one ship. Wow, that's just mind boggling. Well, you're listening to Climate Change. Uh, My host and my guest, uh, Paul Watson, Paul's telling us about his adventures out in the in the ocean. We'll be back in just one minute to talk to Paul about uh, some of the exciting stuff that he's done uh, to prevent uh, whales from being hunted down. You're listening to a climate change. This is Matt Mattern, and I've got Captain Paul Watson on the program today. 
Uh, Captain Paul, tell us a little bit about this uh, krill harvesting. And my understanding is Norway uh, and Japan and are are behind this. Uh, what is being done to kind of awaken uh, the population in those countries to demand better of their politicians? Well, there has been documentation about the damage that they're uh, inflicting on them. Mm-hmm. And at some point in the future, I want to go down there and actually confront them. But uh, it's a slow process getting people to be aware of this because mm-hmm. it's something relatively new when it comes to exploitation. I mean, who would have thought that they would be going mm-hmm. under uh, krill in the ocean for the purpose of feeding uh, cows and pigs and chickens? I mean, but this is the kind of world that we're, we're living in, in right now. So, um, you know, in, in Norway, uh, you, as you mentioned, Norway has a reputation of being uh, green, I suppose, but they got good PR because they, they certainly uh, criticize Brazil for their pro- logging practices in Amazonia, but they're not setting much of a good example in their own country as far as protecting forests and protecting marine life. And any wolf that manages to wander into Norway is immediately shot. Uh, so, you know, it's sort of more, Norway is sort of do what we say, but not as we do. That seems to be their their policy. I mean, it was back in 1992 that Prime Minister Gro Harlem Brundtland of Norway, she was the one who coined the word sustainability. And what that has come to mean right now is that's it's business, but we'll just call it by another name. Everything is sustainable this day, but nothing is. I mean, it's just a it's just a marketing term. And another example of that is the fish that we uh, were trying to protect in the Southern Oceans called the uh, Antarctic or the Patagonia toothfish. Now, that's not a very good marketable name. So what they they sell it as is Chilean sea bass. It's not from Chile and it's not a bass, but (laughs) it's one of the most... you know, destructive uh, fishing industries. First of all, it's an endangered species. There's a lot of illegal catches going on. But second of all, you catch this fish in the Southern Ocean, you put it uh, into a freezing compartment, you take it to an airport, you send it to Paris, you send it to New York. This is not a sustainable fishery. I mean, the fishing industry would like you to think that, you know, there's a billion people who are dependent upon fish for their survival. Well, the people who are ordering Chilean sea bass in New York or Paris are not amongst those people that need to uh, eat fish for survival. And that so it's um it's a very a very destructive industry and yet um you know you have a, a so-called legal fishery like austral fisheries and marua daichiro uh, in japan are going after it legally because there's a certain amount that they're allowed to get but because the fish is co- is so um costs so much uh you have a lot of illegal fishing going down there so that's when we went after this vessel called the thunder that was the one whose net that we collapsed that was run by a Spanish outfit uh, because there's sort of this fishing mafia in Galicia, Spain, and uh, they send dozens and dozens of illegal vessels out there. And they're protected by the Spanish courts because every time we get them into court, the judges just simply say, oh, it's out of our jurisdiction, even though they have a Spanish flag, whatever. What happened with the uh, Thunder, that was uh, the one vessel that was caught and whose net we confiscated, that turned out to be the longest pursuit of a poacher in maritime history, a 110-day chase for the Southern Ocean up along equatorial West Africa. And uh, finally, the captain of the Thunder had nowhere to go. So he sank his own ship right in front of us. Why did he do that? To destroy the, uh, the, the evidence. But we boarded the sinking ship, got the evidence, got evidence of the fish, uh, the documents, uh, the, the, the log books and their computers. And that ended up with the captain and his two officers going to prison for three years and the company being fined 17 million euros. 
which sounds good, except the company just refused to pay and the Spanish courts back. Wow. So a $17 million fine and they, they escaped without paying? That's ridiculous. Well, they did lose their ship, though, and it wasn't insured. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was some benefit to it. But, uh, oh, my God, that's uh, quite a story. Uh, tell us a little bit. Um, are you familiar with the fishing around the Galapagos Islands? I've heard that uh, China is sending a lot of boats there and, and fishing that area very hard. I first got involved with the Galapagos in 1999, and we were working uh, in partnership with the Galapagos National Park and the Ecuadorian uh, Ministry of Fisheries. In fact, I got the Amazon Peace Prize for that uh, that effort. But, uh, you know, it's a very frustrating situation. What we're seeing in uh, the Galapagos is the Hawaiianization of the Galapagos Islands. I mean, it's, you know, bringing in more and more tourists. Those tourists want to eat fish. Those tourists want to eat stakes so we bring cows to the island where they're not supposed to be but outside of that perimeter the 60 mile boundary around the galapagos all the, these foreign fishing fleets not just china but uh, you know other countries peru others they they, they they just lurk on that on the boundaries of the park and they dash in they dash in and get what they can and uh, occasionally they're they're arrested i, I myself have actually uh, apprehended quite a few of them including an american tuna vessel that we apprehended in in the galapagos waters but uh, it, it is a major problem. Here's a, the real problem is it says, so we have these marine protected areas around the world and Galapagos being one of them. That's where the poachers go because that's where they know the fish are. So uh, they're quite willing to go in there. And in many countries, uh, like in the South Pacific and everything, they just bribe the officials to take whatever they, whatever they want. There's so much corruption involved in this entire thing. And uh, so it, it becomes a very frustrating pursuit trying to to stop it. But the Galapagos uh, is being threatened by the Chinese and foreign fisheries on the outside and by ecotourists on the inside. I mean, uh, they, they, they cut down a, a red mangrove swamp uh, you know, on um, one of the islands just to make an ecotourist hotel. You know, this is the kind of thing that we're dealing with. That's quite hypocritical when you cut down uh, the forest that's kind of feeding the ocean and and uh, the ecosystem. Uh, had somebody on the show a while back that's growing kelp uh, off of kind of these uh, installations that are, I guess, man-made and curious as to your thoughts as to the efforts to do that. Uh, they they were of the opinion that they were bringing life back to the ocean and, and bringing uh, food to the fish and uh, helping sustain the environment. Uh, do you think efforts like that are, are valuable? I think there's some uh, small enterprises that uh, are constructive, but the problem is with 8 billion people and the incredible demand that we have on this planet, we're taking too much uh, sea vegetables out, seaweeds, kelp, and everything like this. And we forget that uh, these uh, aquatic plants not only are oxygen producing plants, but they also are uh, very important for the, uh, you know, for the breeding of fishes, uh, you know, like for instance, herring lay their eggs on, on kelp. And uh, so when you start removing this uh, and uh, taking them off the beaches where they're very, we need them all, that kelp on the beaches, you know, if it's wash the shorts on the beach, leave it there. And, but we're just taking too much and that's interfering with the life cycles of so many other species. So we have to take that into, into account when we do any kind of a so-called harvesting of, of, of seaweeds or kelp. I think in a controlled situation where 
it's sort of outside of natural marine ecosystems, then it then it can work, but only only for a certain amount. You can't really mass produce it. Right. It was it was, I think, more or less not so much to produce it to use it as it was to use it to sequester carbon in part because they thought it would be um, a more uh, effective way than even planting a forest because uh, a forest is subject to wildfires and things like that, which can burn down and release the carbon back into the, uh, the atmosphere. Well, I'm all for encouraging the cultivation of marine life, if you leave it alone. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what's next for you? Where where the challenges lie on the horizon? Well, in two weeks, I'll be leaving uh, to go to the waters between Iceland and Greenland to protect endangered fin whales from Icelandic whaling operations. Uh, they wanted to kill up to 169 endangered fin whales, and uh, our objective is to prevent them from uh, from doing that. So uh, how uh, how are you how are you going to do it? Well, the same way I've been doing it for the last fifty years, and that is by interfering, intervening, harassing, blocking, and getting in their way. Right. And uh, in terms of uh, that strategy, what if they're kind of determined to to get it and try to avoid you? Um, how can you effectively block them if they're really persistent? Well, my ships and boats are faster than theirs, so I think we're okay there. We're, we're using drones, inflatable ribs, uh, jet skis, and a very fast long-range ship. Okay. So, well, best of luck to you on that, uh, on that project. Uh, certainly, those whales are waiting for your arrival to help protect them from, uh, from this onslaught. Um, I should I should point out that this whaling isn't being done by Iceland per se. It's done by one man. We call him, he's sort of a modern day Captain Ahab. His name is Christian uh, Lawson. He's been killing whales since the 50s. He's 80 years old. He's one of the wealthiest people in Iceland. He doesn't need to do this, but he loves to kill whales. And he's, he's who we're really up about against. Uh, the majority of people in Iceland are against whaling, but Lawson has an incredible amount of influence with the, with the government. Uh, in Iceland. So uh, it's going to be tough, but, uh, you know, it's not our first rodeo in Iceland. In 1986, uh, we sank half of Iceland's whaling fleet, his whaling fleet. We sank, put two of his ships on the bottom uh, at dockside, didn't hurt anybody. And they, they're still sitting rusting on the beach. They never recovered. So he only has two ships left. Now, that might seem illegal, but I uh, did fly to Iceland right uh, a year later because they wouldn't respond to me. And I, and I said, well, here I am. Well, what are the charges? And uh, they, their response was to kick me out of the country without any charges. And the Minister of Justice uh, said in the old thing of the parliament, he said, who does he think he is? He comes into our country and, and demands to be arrested. Get him out of here. The reason, <laughs> be, the reason being is they knew that to put me on trial in Iceland is to put themselves on trial. And if they, if they do the same thing this year, if they manage to arrest me and put me on trial in Iceland, we will put Iceland on trial for their illegal whaling activities. Well, you're listening to a climate change. We've got captain Paul Watson on the program and uh, fascinating stuff. And, certainly challenging the government of Iceland to to arrest him and and put uh, put this thing before the people and see how dirty um, the government of Iceland is in allowing this to continue to happen. 
You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Matter, your host, and I've got uh, Captain Paul Watson on the program. Captain, uh, you wrote a book recently called Urgent. Uh, tell us a little bit about the book. And uh, I mean, I guess the title tells us a little bit, but uh, you give us the rest of the scoop. Yeah, I wrote Urgent, which is, uh, you know, that the, about the need to protect the ocean if we're going to really uh, be serious about address, addressing climate change. So that's what the, the main emphasis is on it. And it, it really comes out of uh, my participation in the COP21 conference in, in Paris and uh, the ideas put forward uh, at, at that conference. And uh, this just recently I published uh, this book, which is a children's book, which uh, We Are the Ocean. And what this actually is, I'm trying to convey here is that when people ask me, well, you know, what's the ocean got to do with me? I live in, say, Colorado or something. <clears throat> you know, why should I be concerned? But that's how we look upon the ocean is the sea. We don't look upon the ocean as what it is. The ocean is the planet. This is the planet ocean. And that means it's water in continuous circulation. Sometimes it's in the sea, sometimes in ice, sometimes underground, sometimes uh, in the atmosphere and sometimes in the cells of every living plant and animal. So the water in our bodies right now was once recently in the sea, once locked in ice, once underground. It's this continuous circulation. So the answer to the question is, what is the ocean? Is uh, we are the ocean. This is the ocean planet, and we, every living thing on this planet, is the ocean. The ocean flows through us every single day. It flows through us. Without water, no life. And that's really what I'm trying to convey. And I, I find that children understand this a lot better. So that's why I put it in a children's book. Well, you got to start early. They are the they are the future. And hopefully we can do more to protect their future. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think one of the things that you talk about, which is the, you know, the, the biocentrism. And uh, my understanding is you started a church of biocentrism. And uh, I can... You know, I, I think the idea behind it is as far as being less selfish and caring more about our planet and taking care of it is is an incredibly smart idea. I set up the Church of Biocentrism to counter the anthropocentric uh, viewpoints, which are pretty much every single religion is of the, of the belief that it was all created for us. We're the number one species. Everything revolves around us. It's this Copernican uh, idea that, you know, everybody was shocked when uh, Copernicus said that uh, the uh, earth went around the sun instead of the sun going around us. And every year since then, there's been more and more awareness of just how uh, insignificant we are when it comes to that. I mean, we are part of something far greater than ourselves. You know, and uh, we cannot live on this planet without uh, living in harmony with those other species. So really the idea is to try and revoke what indigenous peoples understand, this idea of kinship with nature, that we're all part and interdependent with each other. And so that's why that was my reasoning in setting up the church of biocentrism. People understand uh, the idea of churches. So that's why I'm putting that out there as a, as a church. It's not really a religion per se, but it is a way of uh, trying to convey what biocentrism is all about. Right. Well, I, I mean, one of the extreme, uh, you know, kind of viewpoints on the subject. I mean, Donald Trump, who has kind of spoken about, you know, getting oil out of the ground as 
kind of, well, it's just money there. And so we've got to kind of, we've got to extract it. And who would want to leave this economic opportunity in the ground when we could pump it out and make money off of it? I mean, that's just the kind of the, um, you know, the view that unfortunately a lot of people have had for a long period of time at the resources were there just to take and use without considering what the effect was on the planet or the environment. And yeah, we take take it out of the ground, but then we just spew it into the air and then it causes acidification in the ocean. It causes, you know, it affects people's health that, you know, all the destructive parts of it come out It's best left in the, in the ground is where it really should be. And uh, you know, People sometimes ask me, they say, well, don't you ever get pessimistic or depressed about the way things are going? And I don't because uh, I have a broader understanding of what this is. And that is, you know, we're living in what's called the sixth major extinction event right now. It's called the Anthropocene. We're going to lose more species of plants and animals than between 2000 and 2065 than we've lost in the last 65 million years. And that's incredible. But the Earth has gone through five other major extinction events. The Permian extinction wiped out 97% of everything in the ocean, 76% of everything on land. And yet it recovered because what do all of those extinction events have in common? 18 to 20 million years for a full recovery. So no matter what we do, 18 to 20 million years from now, this is going to be a beautiful planet. We're not going to be here. So this is really not about saving the planet. The planet's going to do just fine. This is about saving ourselves from our own ignorance, our own ecological ignorance. And that's why I set up the Church of Biocenters. Well, I was curious as to your thoughts. Uh, Elon Musk is uh, saying that uh, we need to have more and more people on the planet and that the, the population crisis that he sees is population going down. What's your response to that? Well, I think I think it's insane, really. <laughs> you know, uh, more people, more consumption of resources, more consumption of materials. I mean, of course, Elon Musk thinks we can just go off to the asteroids and start mining them. So that's uh, you know, probably his uh, justification for, for, for doing that. But, you know, we cannot continually be adapting to the diminishment of the resources on, on this planet. We cannot continue to accept the extinction of species after species of plants and animals, everything, you know, from microbes to insects or whatever. We're polluting the ground with herbicides and fungicides and uh, uh, bactericides and uh, you know, so many killing chemicals that we're putting into the ground, into the atmosphere, into the ocean. That, and the more people, the more we're going to be doing that. So uh, it just doesn't make any sense. Now, I do think that uh, one thing about uh, having children that is misunderstood when people say to me, well, I'm not going to have any children because I don't want to contribute to the thing is that those are probably the people who probably should have children because, uh, you know, people who are intelligent enough to know exactly what the problem is are the ones who can convey that to their children. But the problem is a good 80, 90 percent of all the children are born into this planet without being loved, without being uh, nurtured, without being educated. Uh, and, and that's the real problem and everything. So if you have six children, but you provide them with love and nurturing, attention and education, that's better than having one or two that don't get any of that. <laughs> so uh, it's really how you, you can't look, just go across the board and say you can't have children or whatever. But uh, what we do need, though, is to have a reduction in population. And the problem is if we don't, we don't do it, then Mother Nature will make sure that it happens. There will be a dramatic reduction in population because once fossil fuels are, are used, when there's no more fossil fuels to be extracted, 
then uh, civilization is going to collapse because we're not going to be able to support that on uh, on uh, electric cars and everything. You know, but people forget that electric cars have to get their electricity from somewhere, and usually that's coal-fired plants or, or or you know various electrical producing plants from oil or nuclear, whatever. And also the construction of uh, each of those cars is uh, takes an enormous toll in rare earths and lithium and uh, also, you know, child labor, all sorts of things that are involved in it. It's sort of like a, a bright green uh, fantasy that we're going to save the world through electric cars. And uh, I just don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, certainly there are ways to get around transportation-wise that are more efficient than a car-centric culture. I mean, uh, if we had a bike-centric culture um, or at, at a minimum mass transit, uh, that would be so much more efficient than having, um, you know, large vehicles transporting individuals from one place to the next is probably the least efficient way of, of uh transporting people around well also you know i think that we can certainly uh use ships uh and revise sailing ships sail, sail is the most efficient way of doing it you know the cuddy sark and it's uh voyage from china to london uh back in the day uh that that speed has never actually been exceeded it's an average of 22 knots on that voyage you know, uh, so just when sailing ships were becoming highly efficient, we got rid of them. But, you know, we were going, we were going in the right direction in the first place. Also, air transport, there's no reason why we can't transport large amounts of freight using um, uh, helium balloons, uh, actually what he called zeppelins. Zeppelins, uh, you know, can carry an enormous amount of, uh, of uh, cargo and uh, much cheaper and, uh, you don't, and not using fossil fuels as much. You use a little bit, not a, not a lot. Well, there's a lot of fascinating ways that we can in, you know, change the planet and do positive things. So uh, I appreciate your great work and uh, thanks for being on the show. Uh, Captain, Captain Paul Watson uh, with us and go check out his book, Urgent, as well as his children's book, uh, We Are the Ocean. And uh, visit his website, Captain Paul Watson Foundation. And uh, if you'd like, uh, be a member of his church, the Church of Biocentrism. Uh, so these are all things that you can do to engage on the environment. Also, you know, there's a ton of old Sea Shepherd episodes online that you can go check out. Um, wanted to all of you check us out online at climatechange.com. Listen to old episodes there. You can follow us on social media and uh, tune in next week. We'll uh, have another great guest on the show again. Thank you, Captain Paul, for joining us and enlightening us as to your work. Well, thank you. And also, we're going to revive that TV show. It'll be called Neptune's Navy. Ah, oh, that sounds great. So uh, Neptune's Navy. Uh, stay tuned, everybody, and check it out online. Thank you. Thank you.